What if you could have a fresh start? What if you could do life over again? What would you choose to do differently? What would you focus on? What would you give your attention to? Fresh starts sound appealing. Hitting reset on our finances. Wiping away debt. Starting from scratch in a place where no one knows who we are. No one knows the things we've done. I bet many of us would jump at the chance to join some sort of witness protection where they send us away. We get a new job, a new name, a new identity, and a new location. These sound appealing, sounds hopeful, a fresh start, a new beginning. All the burdens of life given over to this new life. The reality is, regardless of where we might be located to, relocated to in this witness protection program, one problem we will face From the very beginning of our fresh start and our new beginning is that we are the same. You see, the problem with our lives isn't that we have debt that we hope to be wiped away or a past that we hope everyone would forget. The problem, frankly, is with us. The problem isn't in the location we live, the name we have, or even the profession that we've pursued. The problem lies in our own hearts. As we'll see today in this post-flood narrative, fresh starts and new beginnings doesn't mean that sin is gone While Noah and his family had a fresh start, the problem of sin continued. For it was not God's goal to remove sin from the world by destroying the world in a flood. For if God's goal was to eradicate sin from the world, he had to eradicate all of humanity. But he didn't. God chose rather to use sinners to bring about his plan of redemption. And that's the same story that God tells today, that God uses sinners to communicate the message of salvation through Christ alone. What was the point of this global flood that we thought about last week? Was it so that humanity would have a fresh start, a new beginning? Not at all. God chose to judge the world through flood that he would, in doing so, teach us and his people that it would be through judgment that God would make all things new. If you were to take that theme and read your Bible today, in various places, whether you be in the law or in the prophets or in the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, or in the New Testament, In the epistles and in Revelation, you will see that theme show up in every single book. 
God makes all things new through judgment. God is destroying in order that he can make new. This, of course, all points forward in redemptive history. Through the judgment of Jesus Christ, God makes all things new. This is the point we thought about last week. Let that roll in our minds. This week, we're kind of picking up with that same theme and expanding it and thinking about it in life in, the, in light of the local church. So I want to begin this morning by reading a portion. Of course, as I noted last week and in the weeks ahead, we're covering a lot of verses, a lot of material in a short fashion. Um, therefore, two things to serve you well. Number one, read this passage ahead of time. So next week, Pastor Rod is going to be preaching from Psalm 51. Friend, if you don't have anything to read throughout the week, there you go. Psalm 51, read it every morning. Think about it. In the following week, be reading uh, Genesis 12 and 13. Uh, use this for your benefit so that you're ready to think with us as we gather. Well, friends, this morning we're going to consider Genesis 9 uh, and uh, through chapter 11. And again, the second point that I would just encourage you is, um, is as I'm reading uh, along, if there's something that, that you want to think more about, man, just highlight that and then read that later uh, today. Well, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. If you found your way there, it's on page 7 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Just let me encourage you to uh, be there. Have your Bibles open. Uh, I have nothing innovative to say, um, but we hope to hear from God and his word this morning. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Well, of course, the story is going to continue into chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10, you'll notice, is a, just a, a really long genealogical uh, survey. And we'll, we'll think about what this means. We're not going to go through every one of these people, but I hope to. And then you'll see in chapter 11, I'll read that one in just a moment. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, these stories uh, really fit nicely together because it really gives us a concluding picture of humanity post-flood and pre-Israel. So chapter 11 of Genesis really uh, ends very abruptly and, and clearly kind of shifting the camera away from humanity universal. So really chapters 1 through 11 is a picture of all of humanity. God creating the heavens and the earth. God creating human humanity in his image. Male and female he created them. And this sort of tracing those early centuries of humanity. 
Then the camera sort of focuses in, if you will, kind of pans from that panoramic view of viewing all of humanity, kind of narrows in on one particular people, the people of Terah, the the father of Abram, uh, from whom the nation of Israel will be born. So, So from the nations at large, God focuses in on his redemptive plan to save humanity, not by saving all of humanity at the beginning, but saving one particular people, that through them, God would bless the nations, that through the seed that he promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 15 would be realized through one particular people group of all the people groups in the world. It would be through the nation of Israel that God would send the promised seed, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll think about that more in the weeks ahead. And so uh, this sort of ends, if you will, the first uh, section of Genesis this morning, rounding out. And here's the truth I want you to hear this morning. Here's the point that you need to have in your soul. Left to ourselves, there is no hope for humanity. Left to ourselves, there is no hope for humanity. We're going to consider a couple stories here. First, Noah and his drunkenness and the Tower of Babel and the 70 nations in chapter 10. That through uh, uh, the promised seed, humanity will be rescued from their sin, be rescued from our sin and the kingdom of God restored. So if we were to do it ourselves, we would fail. But God, in his grace, in his sovereign love, And care for us. Our God is a promise keeping God. And he promised. That in in Genesis 3.15. That he would raise up a savior. Through one of the children of Eve. And what we see in these chapters. Is God's sovereign plan. Unfolded in redemptive history. That God is a promise-keeping God. So this morning, I want us to see our need for a better Adam. In other words, I want us to be convinced through these stories that there is no hope in humanity. There's no hope in you. There's no hope in you getting your life straightened out. There's no hope in your family. There's only hope in Jesus Christ. Only hope in him. So I want us to do that by considering these three three chapters. Chapter 9, those verses I just read. Chapter 10, and then chapter 11. So I've organized this really in three points. Three truths. And what, how I wanted to do this, to, to really get your sense of need, I wanted you to consider who God is. How God reveals himself in these chapters leads us to conclude our need for him. In other words, if God is that great, we must be that small. For us to understand, really, the point of the passage, I want you to get these three truths in your mind. The first one is this, that God graciously saves sinners. God graciously saves sinners. Now, you might think, well, that's a very generic. What does that have to do with Noah? Here's, the, here's what I want you to see very quickly. God saved Noah. Noah was said to be righteous and blameless and one who walked with God. But yet Noah, 
was still a sinner in need of a Savior. Though he was saved, he was a sinner. As we see clearly in this story, what does he do? But the very first thing, he gets off, he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk. Now, to be fair to Noah, one of the very first things he did back, if you look at the end of chapter 8, was that he built an altar to the Lord. He gets off the the ark, he walks down, he descends. The very first thing he does is build this ark and sacrifice. And boy, time did not take long before Noah slipped into sin. The point I want us to see this morning is that God graciously saves sinners like Noah. And what we see presented to us here and why I consider this a part of chapter 10 is this is that new beginning, a fresh start. And what do you notice happens? The exact same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3. It's exactly a retelling of Genesis chapter 3 all over again. God creates man in his image. He blesses them. He gives them all of the fruit to eat. And what does man do again? He consumes the fruit and gets wasted off of it. You see again, man taking up life on his own. Just look there at verse 20, this sort of intentionality on Noah's part. Noah was like 500 years old. He is not an idiot. He knows that if he drinks wine to excess, he is going to get drunk. All right. So so Noah's not like, you know, innocent and like, oh, I didn't know that wine was going to make me drunk. Notice what he writes. Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. The idea here is intention, intentionality on Noah's part. He knew what he was doing. He knew what would result. Now, to be clear, the Bible doesn't forbid uh, consumption of alcohol or wine. In fact, places in the Bible often point to the the goodness. It's a gift of God. And that's exactly the point that Moses is making here. Noah is taking a gift and abusing it. He's taking what God meant for his good and using it for his own harm. Look there again in verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. He's so inebriated, he's so uh, uh, drunk that he rips his clothes off and he's, he just exposes himself in the midst of his home. This man has a alcohol problem, doesn't he? The point of the passage you see very clearly is he's not just like stumbling into alcohol like, oh, you know, oops. No, no, he's so drunk that he's ripping his clothes off and laying naked. That's you've gone pretty far, haven't you? He's not a novice to it. And so we see here in Noah's drunkenness is really a second fall. God resets the clock, if you will, restarts humanity. And what do you notice immediately? They do. They fall into sin. Again, the point that Moses is trying to reiterate is that God graciously saves sinners, but put no hope in sinners. As one would read this story, you might think, wow, finally, things are going to get better. God eradicated all those wicked, sinful people. Finally got rid of them. Yes. But he didn't. Noah's sin is clear. Remember Lamech, his father, Noah's father, put hope in him. 
Uh, just if you have your Bibles, just look back, if you will. Um, you'll see here at the end of this uh, genealogy at the end of chapter five. So chapter five, verse 28. Lamech was. Was Noah's dad. Look what he says. And Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying this. This is he was prophesying. He was saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech was a man of faith. That's why Noah was a man of faith. He believed that promise of Genesis 3.15 that God was going to raise up a seed who would crush the head of the ancients, that ancient serpent. And we see here Lamech's faith in Noah. Noah was the promised seed. Noah was the one. He was going to be the new Adam. He was the one that was going to finally set humanity on the right path. He walked with God. He was righteous and blameless. The problem was, is his heart was corrupt like the rest of humanity. You see, the Bible tells us that even we, even us who live righteously still have hearts that are tainted by sin. The story of the Bible will tell us that we don't need to uh, have a bunch of laws and rules to follow. That will never save us, but we need to have circumcised hearts. We need new hearts. And the promise of the new covenant is that God gives us new hearts through a process, a, a supernatural process called regeneration. Where God takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. You see, Noah had a heart of stone. He needed a heart of flesh. He needed a new heart. He didn't need new behavior. Noah proved to be corrupted like the rest of humanity. And even worse, as you see in the text here in chapter 9, that Noah's son, Ham, was even greater in wickedness. Ham defiles his father. In the midst of his sin, Ham makes it worse. Look at the text again, back to chapter 9 and verse 22. We're told that Ham, the father of Canaan. Now, now again, we'll we'll get to why you see Canaan sort of rise up here. So uh, Ham has a son. His name is Canaan. We'll get to why he's involved in the situation. But, But nonetheless, we're told in verse 22 that Ham sees the nakedness of Noah And then goes and tells his brothers outside. Now, uh, the brevity, the shortness of this uh, is intentional. Uh, In other words, Moses doesn't want to dwell on the grotesqueness of sin. Right. He just says Noah drank and became drunk. Again, that brevity is meant to communicate heinousness. In other words, this is so heinous in the eyes of Moses that he, he just sort of let me just tell you as little bit just enough to get the picture but not so much that your mind is taken away into temptation and sin. Does that make sense? And so we're told that Ham does something to defile his father and then goes and runs and tells his brothers about it. And you see the righteousness of his brothers in comparison to him and that they are said twice to have walked backwards. So there in verse 23, we see sort of intentionally making this emphasis that is younger, that the, that the other brothers, Shem and Japheth, don't look on their father's naked. They don't defile their father. They don't um, do whatever Ham did. Again, the point is, is that God is graciously saving sinners. This family is a hot mess. 
So, so it would be wrong for you to read into the story of Noah and his family and say, okay, because they were perfect, God saved them. God saves perfect people. Not at all. The point that we want to come away with is that God saves messed up people. He saves families that are dysfunctional. In fact, the rest of the story of Genesis is about how God chooses some messed up people to bring about his redemptive purposes. I mean, really messed up. Not just a little bit messed up. I mean, God saves Lot and his daughters and they grow in some grotesque sin. God saves Ju- through the line of the tribe of Judah. You know, it's so funny. I used to uh, joke with people, name their kid Judah. I would be like, yo, uh, do you ever read the story about Judah in the Bible? Like, he's messed up. I don't know if I know. Uh, right? He was. But God uses sinners to bring about his redemptive purposes. Friends, this should encourage us this morning. This should give us hope this morning. These pages should should give us joy to know that God, even in the midst of our rebellion and sin, is graciously working to sanctify us and make us holy. More to the point, it reminds us that God saves and uses the broke and the weak to confound the strong. Paul reminds us of this truth in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friend, this morning, there is no hope in humanity. There's no hope in a, in, in a strong leader. There's no hope in even a righteous one. There's only hope in the, capital R, righteous one. Jesus Christ. You see, the, the story is meant To demonstrate that even this second Adam that Noah was to be, he failed too. There's this anticipation of a new Adam, a better Adam. Like we sang, come behold the wondrous mystery. The new and greater, better Adam has come. He's come. See, this is why it's so important for us to think about the righteous life of Christ. Not only his perfect sacrifice, but his perfect death. Friend, you will never, ever see your need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will never understand what it means to follow Jesus until you come to the point where you see that apart from Christ, you are helpless. You've got to sense your your need for him. Friend, what are you putting your hope in today? Is it in maybe a new start? You know, so often for me, I'm tempted to say, okay, it's Sunday. It's a new week. I promise this week I won't mess up, Lord. And then Monday comes. Well, Sunday's coming. I'll I'll pray that prayer again on Sunday. I promise I won't mess up. Friend, don't live like that. 
find in Christ a perfect sacrifice and his perfect life accredited to you by faith. The subsequent events of the fall and the cursing of Canaan reminds us that God graciously rescues sinners, but that God is still a righteous judge. We see here in the cursing of Canaan in verse 25, you're kind of left to wonder like, hey, why doesn't Ham get cursed? He's the two that messed up. Well, as so often is the case in the Bible, it's the sons that are worse than the fathers. And in fact, that is a theme you will find in the book of Genesis, that the, the sons tend to act and sort of highlight, and even to extreme levels, the sins of their fathers. And so Cain is sort of called out here because he's the one, and particularly his descendants, are the ones who are going to just sort of explode in sinful rebellion against God. The Canaanites are the people whom the Israelites who are reading this story are about to face. Now remember, Moses is writing this to the Israelite people as they're making their way for 40 years through the wilderness. And they're on the Jordan River. They are at the promised land. They are ready to go in. Who lives there? Remember Caleb and the spies. Joshua, go out and they see the land is littered with people. And we are as grasshoppers. They are giants. They are big. They're innovative. They have huge industrial buildings and complexes. And it's, we're no match for them. Moses is reminding them in this story that God's purpose is for the nation of Israel to destroy his enemies, the Canaanites, the ones who will lead them to the sin of Cain, that way there to avoid. Well, as we consider this text, we also have to consider a second truth about God, is that God is sovereign over the nations. As we see through the cursing of Canaan and then in the table of nations in chapter 10, is that God is sovereign over the nations. Now, how would we get that point? Well, it's because God is the one who is orchestrating and working to form these nations to display his glory. Now, I'm not going to read through all these if you want to laugh at the, my pronunciation of all these Hebrew words. Um, I'm not going to allow you uh, laughter today. Um, but I will show you a few things. First, we, we see the chapter begins by saying this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. What you'll see if you were to count up these nations is that there are 70 nations. Seven times ten. Seven being that number of perfection. Ten being that number of completion. Numbers that Moses has been using throughout seven days of creation. Perfect. He's been using these numbers throughout to emphasize perfection and God's sovereign care over them. And here he lists out these 70 nations to demonstrate that that. God is the king who reigns over these nations. And we'll see in verses 2 through 5, first, the nation, the nations that come from Japheth. The sons of, the sons of Japheth. Then in chapter 10, verses 6, all the way through 20, we see this really expanded form of the nations of 
that come from Ham. Now, Ham and his family are the cursed one. Why is it that Moses spends so sinking much time on these nations? Because these nations are going to be the nations that are Israel's greatest enemies. In other words, the sin that is going to draw the nation of Israel away from the Lord is going to come from these nations to, again, emphasize the sort of uh, passing on, if you will, from generation to generation, uh, sin and rebellion against God, as illustrated in their leader, Ham, and his rebellion against God. A couple of things we'll notice in the passage in first then in verse 6, you see that Egypt is one that comes from Ham as well as Canaan. Uh, you see later uh, in verse 8, you see that Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdoms was Babel, the Babylonians, right? The Babylonians going to be, of course, that nation, that Mesopotamian society that is going to uh, years later, take Israel into captivity. Moses being very clear about that. Of course, he prophesies uh, in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy that that is going to happen to the nation of Israel. Again, you see in verse 11, from that he went, Nimrod, into Syria. Assyria, again, going to be an enemy of the northern tribes of Israel. Assyria is going to attack and, and eventually take the, the northern tribes. Also, you see, he built Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, Jonah, right? A uh, great enemy. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because, well, he had grown up to learn to hate Nineveh. Ninevites were, were vile people. They were, they were despised by the Hebrews because they were arch enemies of them. And so we see the source of some of these uh, conflicts. Then you see in verses 15 through 20, Moses takes particular attention to Canaan and his family line. And notice the names that he lists here. If you know your Bibles well, these names are, are the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites. Right? It just goes on and on and on. These, of course, are going to be the nations that Israel is going to face as they make their way through the wilderness, as they come into the promised land, nations that God is going to use, that use to tempt them, and nations for which Israel is going to destroy. In other words, God is going to exact his sovereign judge over these nations through Israel in the history that will follow. So we see throughout this that there's this attention, this focus given here, so that you and I might conclude from this that God is sovereign over these nations, that God reigns over them. So, for example, if you look at verse 19, and the territory of Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gir as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Armah, and Sabuim. It's anticipating what's coming in the stories that are going to unfold when God will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment of them. As Christians, how do we find hope in God's sovereignty over the nations? Well, in Revelation 6.10, we are told this, 
That as the church was being persecuted, they cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Brothers and sisters, as we think about the world events around us, as we think about the world we live in, it is good to know that our God is sovereign. It is good to know that our God is in control. That he's the one that's going to bring about redemption in our life and every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is good to know that there is no king on this earth that does anything apart from the sovereign care of our God. He is the one true king. You may reject him as king. You may choose to live life your own way. But God is still sovereign over the nations. Finally, I want to conclude by looking at the story of the Tower of Babel. For us to be saved from our sins, we need a God who is sovereign over the nations. We need a God who rules. And then in this table of nations that we just considered in chapter 10, we see that God reigns as sovereign king over his creation and that he is bringing about his promises through the nations of men. This leads us to this truth that we see in chapter 11, that God is a promise-keeping God, that God makes promises and he keeps his promises. And in the last few minutes that we have, I want us to consider this promise-keeping God. This, again, all fits with the need we have for God. We need a God who graciously saves sinners. We need a God who is sovereign in our salvation. We need a God who keeps his promises. Because if God can't keep his word, if he can't keep his promises, then we have no hope. We have no assurance. But the truth that we see in scripture again and again and again is that God is keeping his promises. He makes them and he keeps them. He keeps them in Christ. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and put them and burn them thoroughly. And they made bricks for stone and pitmen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, there are one, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babylon or Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. See, God made a promise, didn't he? That I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you look back in chapter 9, rather chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 17. When Noah and his family left the ark. He says this to them, bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. It'll continue to say that then from there, God commands not only the birds and the animals to do that, but that humanity was to go and disperse themselves around the globe, fill the earth, subdue it. 
But what we see in the Tower of Babel is exactly the opposite. Again, we're seeing the same theme. Man living life their own way. God tells them, I want you to go and be fruitful and multiply. I want you to spread out. I want you to you know, establish families. I want you to do all of that. And, and essentially, man says, no, we're good. We're going to go over here and, and we're going to stay. We see that. Look, look there to chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 4. At the end of their statement there, they say this. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In other words, humanity wanted to huddle together rather than do what the Lord said. And isn't that so ironic? How often, even in our own day and what we saw in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, man still trying to unify themselves around some sort of common goal. We see post-World War II sort of united nations. Something that God judges clearly here in Genesis chapter 11. Nations getting together, trying to be unified but unable to. Trying to get it go against God's will. We see human action here and we're reported that these wonders settled in a plain. They said, hey, we're going to settle here and we're going to build a big city. Humanity seeks to build a city and a tower for themselves. And God here is going to fulfill his promise that he's not going to allow man to rebel against him. That he will judge sin. And they build this towering city and they gather together. And we're told there in verse 6, kind of ironically, right? Look at what God does. Behold, they are one people and one language. Or rather, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. They were building a tower to heaven. They wanted to build a tower to God. And uh, for God to like actually see it, he had to come down. Uh, it, it, Moses is emphasizing how little the city really was in the eyes of God. Some, something they thought was wonderful, God says, this is really just kind of small that I had to stoop down to look at it. And in response to this, God judges these individuals and disperses them. And we're told this is how the nations get formed. Again, chapter 10 is sort of a a summary of what chapter 11 creates. Again, the point remains that God is sovereignly creating these nations, fulfilling the promises that he gave to Adam and to Eve. Where did language come from? Where did nations come from? Where where did ethnicity come from? The story that we are reading here is that it came from God. God is the source of these things. God is the one who's dispersing. So that, as we'll see in the subsequent chapters of Genesis, that through one nation he would bless all of humanity. In chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, what we see is God's plan through Noah... And ultimately, through Abram, God would bless the world. We see a similarity to Adam's descendants in chapter 5. But this time, the focus here is on one particular people. That God's promise will be kept in Abram. And in Abram's children. And his great-great-grandson, Israel. And in Israel's twelve sons, the nations of the world will be blessed. Friends, God keeps his promises. 
As Moses would see later, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful. Our God is faithful to his word. Or as Peter would remind us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some counsel on this, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Brothers and sisters, do you doubt God's promises this morning? You might find a story like this just sort of to be obscure and strange and just kind of helpful. You know, okay, that's how the nations got formed. The point that God is making about himself and your need for him is very clear. God promised to humanity is that they would be fruitful and multiply. Humanity sought to subvert God's promises and subvert God's word. But God was faithful to disperse humanity. And so that, and this is the point, so that his promise would be fulfilled. Left to ourselves, brothers and sisters, there is no hope for humanity. I hope you heard earlier in in chapter 11, you see that God confuses the languages. He creates language so that man can't communicate with one another. And you can't miss what you heard earlier in Acts chapter 2 is God restoring what he dispersed. The point of Pentecost is that God has made all things new through Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that is that man no longer is divided through language, but is unified. Now, they were speaking in their own tongues. They, these men, these Galileans in, in Acts chapter 2, who didn't know all of these various languages, through the power of the Holy Spirit, began to prophesy the gospel, began to preach the gospel in language that they did not know to people's ears who could hear and believe. And if you will go and look at the table of nations in chapter 10 and compare it to what is restored in Acts chapter 2, you will see that all that God dispersed, he unites again. Not through humanity, not through Noah, not even through Abram, but through the new and better Adam, Jesus Christ. And so that we are left to conclude that God's plan of salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Only through Christ are we saved for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. That here today there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but that all is in Christ. That we are one in Christ. As a body, we are united through the blood of Christ. So what identifies us isn't our nationality, it isn't our language. What unifies us this morning isn't that we all speak a common English vocabulary or that we all look the same, dress the same, think the same. But what unifies us this morning is the blood of Jesus Christ. That what you divided, you've united for your glory. And it is for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.